Futurize goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in tech, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trulnarna Unheim, futurist and author. In episode 95 of the podcast, the topic is Seed VC Trends, Founder Obsession. Our guest is Tyler Norwood, partner at Antler, the global early-stage venture capital firm. In this conversation, we talk about how Tyler got into venture, and we discuss betting on founders, teams, and people. We cover the role of pivots, failures, and learning fast and slow. We discuss seed stage metrics, how to reduce risk, and how to ensure max upside. We spend some time on what it means to run a platform VC and what best practice is at Anther, Alpaca, and others. And what does a market look like? What's the seed investing outlook the next decade? And what are the differences between the US and globally for VCs and startups? Tyler. Hey, Tron. How How's are you? Going? I'm good. <laughs> Just hanging out in Austin. The snow has melted, so uh, we're all doing great. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, there's no snow in Boston either. For some reason, it disappeared. It just got, you know, we went uh, 40 degrees difference in, in three days. So that's good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Tyler, you are an interesting guy, as most people on my podcast, but you have this very strange oscillation between marketplaces and, uh, um, Asia and uh, now Texas, um, <laughs> and a million other things, and a million other that. things. Yeah, I think oscillation is probably the right word. I, I, uh, the biggest struggle I have in life is like I think about this all the time. There's an endless thing list of things that I want to learn about, and I just don't have time. Like, I, I get frustrated. I don't have time. Uh, there's like ten languages I want to learn, and piano and filmmaking in every industry that we could invest it's it's a, it's a real burden. It's a burden maybe, but it makes you more interesting and and by the way I was just watching this clip, you know, Gary Vee is everywhere and he he was just talking about how he was giving advice to a young woman who was asking him, you know, everyone's telling me to focus and he said, "No, don't focus. You and I are the same. We we don't focus and we shouldn't focus. We're not made to focus. Our focus is that we're not being focused." And I thought yeah. that, you know, he says a lot of stuff and not everything is equally profound in my view, but he is certainly, uh, he is profound about certain things. And this, yeah. I think, happens to be a really good insight. The The whole obsession around focus is actually not always so productive. Yeah, I agree. It depends I think who you a, are. Yeah, it does. And I think it's about, I mean... One of the nuances that's never discussed with people like Gary Vee or then the opposite side of someone who's like really, really focused and deep is that the I think a well-functioning society depends on both. It's not there's not one prescriptive like right or wrong. Um, you need you need people who go really deep, right? You need PhDs, you need people who like move the needle a little bit in an area that has so much to learn before you can contribute to it. But then you also need people, especially in the modern day where like the, the systems that we live in and work in are so big, you need people who are interested in a lot of different things because there's also tons of innovation and lots of new things that can be created by like connecting disparate things. So that's, uh, that's, that's a great statement, uh, actually. But just explain it to me then. Why are you now in venture? I, is it because venture 
does all of that for you? Because that's one of the reasons I'm in venture right now. It, it yeah. actually combines so many things. Like we get to look at so many sectors. We get to meet yeah. young founders that are all enthusiastic about different things. And we get to have a thesis about where the world is going. And, yeah. uh, and that is kind of our focus. Is, is yeah. that why you, you are in venture or is it more haphazard than that? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's as haphazard as everything in life is, I guess, which is uh, more than I think we give credit for. But uh, similar reasons to you. So a couple of things that really stand out to me in venture. One is that like it's very suitable for somebody that likes to learn about a lot of different things. So um, like I said, like my injury, like if you look at my bookshelf, it doesn't make any sense like what like book to book to book. It's just this kind of random like, oh my gosh, I don't know about this. I want to deep dive. And I, my friends always make fun of me as like the trivia master. And and I have this, I, I have this. Are you too? Would you beat me at Trivial Pursuit? I mean, many people would beat me, but would you in particular beat me? Maybe, probably, I would say. I mean, I probably have just a cultural edge on you of, of growing up in the United States. For that, that is actually super annoying with that game. Yeah, yeah. Trivial Pursuit is, is very cultural. It's very, I've, tried to play Trivial Pursuit with lots of different friends. And there's a big disparity of having grown up in the United States. Like it, it, it is very nineties cultural reference, but, um, I, my friends, especially my very close friends for a long time, they, they sort of make fun of me. And it's sort of this annoying habit I have of like, why do you, why do you know that? Because people be talking about something. It's like, why do you know that? And the answer is almost always like, <laughs> I read about it. And then I went down this like Wikipedia rabbit hole, like way too far. <laughs> and then it just kind of stuck with me. So like I, I, I whenever I find something, I'm like, I, I'd really like to know more about that. And I'll kind of go down this rabbit hole. And then it's like, all right, that's as much as I need to know for a dinner conversation about this specific topic. And it's kind of like the next rabbit hole, the next rabbit hole. Um, and so venture is very interesting to me. One, because like part of your job is to switch contexts a lot and to understand a lot of different things. Um, I also very much enjoy... Like the, the part of venture capital that I like a lot is it's very, very forward-facing. So the point of venture is to try to build companies that are going to push things forward and to find founders who are very forward-thinking and very visionary. And so like I, I very much so like to live in the future and thinking about where things are headed and, and what we can do to make things better, et cetera. And it's very aligned with that. Um, and... I think the third is like venture is a people business ultimately. Um, and I enjoy that very much and I'm good at that. So it's kind of that, you know, you see that thing on Instagram where it's like, find something that you like and you're good at and you can make money doing. And to me, at least for right now, and uh, I think for probably an extended period of my life, like it's a good convergence of those things. I'm good at it. I'm good at the people part. Um Tell me more about the people part, uh, Tyler, because you know so many people in venture would at least for the longest time, maybe not now, and I'm not claiming it's uh, you know super unique to to say that people is important in venture, but it wasn't always so because there was of course this like yeah we we bet on a team, but very yeah. much is like we bet on a thesis or we bet uh, we bet on a market or an opportunity. Tell me about how you see this, uh, I guess, obsession around founders, teams, people, um, types yeah. of people, 
even personality traits. Like there, there, there are now venture firms that are going pretty deep, and I guess Antler is is one example, right? Of of companies yeah. that are, or venture firms that are going really emphasizing the people dimension and are trying yeah. to almost like crack it. You yeah. know, if you can. Uh, yeah. So. I mean, there's so many elements here. I guess to your question, it sounds like, I mean, we can focus on the people part of the founders. There's a whole people part of the like going through the process of building a company. So like as you scale, as you raise money, as you hire, as you build a team, as you sell, like all of those are functions of people skills. Um, And then there's the founder piece, uh, which, I mean, I'm still developing a lot of thoughts around this and I'm, 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 sort of in a data collection mode. I have some soft opinions about things, but they can very easily be changed by data that I see or things that I see. Um, One of the thoughts I've had uh, very recently is, you know, like being an entrepreneur used to be a very niche career, maybe even 10 years ago. Let's say, let's go 20 years ago. Like being an entrepreneur was like a very weird career move. It was seen as like incredibly... (laughs) almost like untenably risky because you had all these other great options at companies. um, And sort of the paradigm was you you work, you make your pension or you're a union member and you put in your time and then you retire and you're sort of taken care of through life. And as that, um, as that's kind of fallen apart in the U S that's no longer really a career option for a lot of people uh, for a number of reasons. One of the, reasons I think that's true in the U.S. is like the economy is moving way too fast for that to happen. So like our parents lived in a world where if you graduated college and you worked at Xerox out of college, it's fairly likely that Xerox would be around for 40 or 50 years. You know, it was an established, it took a long time for the economy to make big changes and for incumbents to fall and be replaced. And the internet, the the financial infrastructures that, that we've created, the speed at which innovation is happening right now, the speed at which consumers are changing preferences right now, et cetera, that assumption is no longer, like assuming a company will be around in 50 years is like pretty bold <laughs> assumption. Um, things just change too fast. And so we all had to adapt to this new world. We're like, hey, you're going to have a bunch, you're going to have a lot more jobs than your parents had probably. You're probably even going to switch careers because what you start off as may not even be a relevant career by the end of your career, right? And, and that's a very new paradigm. So I think what's that, what, what has happened is one of the symptoms of that is like being an entrepreneur has become very in vogue. It's like a very cool career now. It's, it's viewed much differently than it was before. Um, and so one of the big obsessions with people is now that you've flooded the market with all of these people who want to be an entrepreneur, there are a lot more motivations for people wanting to be an entrepreneur. So I think the industry as a whole has had to try to respond and figure out, well, like, how do you sort out? Because being an entrepreneur is super duper hard. It's very glamorized. One of the reasons why I think entrepreneurship is so popular right now is it's like, it's very glamorized. It's just like amazing career option where you get to be your own boss and you like put in five years of really hard work and then you're a millionaire or a billionaire or whatever it is. And the reality is like that that's like really poor availability bias of like that's not that that's not the average outcome. Um it's not the median or the mean outcome of actually being an entrepreneur. And 
I think the financial world, the financial side of investing in companies has had to come up with a lot of ways to figure out, yes, we want to back founders who want to be entrepreneurs and be passionate, but we also have to create systems that try to root through the motivations of like, why do you really want to do this? Are you in it for the long run? Are you doing it for the right reasons? Because I think there are right and there are wrong reasons to want to be an entrepreneur. So I want to hear more about that. But I, but I think just to pick up on another thing you said, it's not just the, the right or wrong reasons, which in and of themselves is, is, of course, true. But I mean, is being an entrepreneur actually a career? And, and I'm asking you more in the sense of, I mean, of course, you can choose to see it as a career. But a lot of successful entrepreneurs even by default, right? If you get acquired, you sort of spend a little bit of time as an entrepreneur, a little bit of time in a larger company, and, and then yeah. maybe you do something else. I mean, is it re, is the serial entrepreneur in particular uh, yeah. uh, healthy to only want to start companies as your only mode? Um, I think I think so, but I'm biased. Like I've never in my entire career worked for a company that had more than 500 people in it. And I've almost always come in at the ground level, came in at the ground level at Antler. What I enjoy is the the beginning and the starting of a company. And so I do think it's, it's a career. And I think over time, a serial entrepreneur will collect skills, they'll collect network, they'll collect reputation that will help continue their success as an entrepreneur to varying levels. Um, but I, I do think it's a career path. I think my point though is like, it's not a career path for everybody. So the, the way to explore that, I wanted to explore it per, in a personal level. Why are you actually, why do you think you are currently, um, an entrepreneur? Like what, what happened the first time you were entrepreneurial, what guided you into that? And then, and then I guess it also ties into like, why are you now at Antler? Because if I look again at your, you know, your your path, I, I guess everybody's path is atypical. I mean, would you say that you did any any amount of planning when you to to sort of be where you are now? No, I did like, I, I did probably below average amount of planning through my, you know, I <laughs> I went to high school because you had to. Uh, I applied to one college, <laughs> which is like, what, I applied to college which was far enough away from my house that I didn't have to see my parents all the time was in North Carolina. So it was cheap. Right. So I got in-state tuition. And then the final piece was like Appalachian state is in the, the mountains. And so you can ski. And so for basically close to half the year after class, you can go ski. And then during the summer, it's like perfect mountain weather. So you can golf and hang out. So like that. <laughs> so it was a lifestyle choice for you also. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, that was the amount of planning that went into like me deciding where to go to college. And, and the lack of planning was like, if I didn't get into app, like I, <laughs> I had no backup choices, just all in on that. Um, and I think I wrote that in my application to school just so they would like either take me seriously or like feel bad if they rejected me. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Um, and then obviously like I, I moved. So the day I graduated college, I moved overseas. Um, that was, I, I mean, as un, I planned to move overseas, every other step after that was unplanned, sort of on purpose. Like that was what was exciting to me. It was like, I was just going to go over there and figure it out, like blank slate. Sure, but I mean, overseas, you, you, you went to Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, that was part of overseas it. Overseas like, for Americans means that you go to London and Paris. <laughs> so, I mean, you, you didn't follow the script. Yeah. It was, I mean, it was like maximize adventure. And like part of adventure to me is like, there's not really a plan. There's a, there's a sense of like what you want to accomplish over there, but there's not this like step-by-step itinerary plan. Hmm. I don't, I'm not great. For example, it's Thursday today. I've got no idea what I'm doing this weekend. Like I'm just not, I'm not a planner. I'm really bad at planning. I like write down stuff all the time and then just like lose a piece of paper. And I'm like, uh, but do you think planning is planning skills then not fundamental for, for an entrepreneur? So I'm just thinking about, even if you're just thinking about uh, founders, right? So we were talking about people. And, yeah. and and there's this uh, trend of, of focusing more on, on the people aspect in, in VC, both for selecting and, yeah. and, 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 and in terms of what we're helping them with. Yeah. But, um, but planning, you're saying, for you hasn't been fundamental. How do you, how do you cope with that? If, you're say, if, you're, if it's really true that you're not a planner, do yeah. you have systems or people around you that are much better at that? And is, is that how you address it? Yeah. Yeah. So... Two things. One is I've had to learn how to plan when it's appropriate. So I think there is this sense of like, especially with startups, especially with early stage startups, like you see a founder and you meet them and they have this like five-year plan. And the first thing I always think is like, this is bullshit. <laughs> like, This is not how it's going to, there's no way to know how this is going to go. And if your confidence in this working is on this like PowerPoint plan that you've put together, like you, it's misplaced. Um but at the same time, there are realities of running a company where you do have to plan, right? And, you know, I, I run an investment fund. I manage people's money. Like, I've had to learn how to plan around a business and, and be responsible and understand how to build that structure and how to, uh, you know, I can't, I can't live my life like as willy-nilly as I did in my 20s with the amount of responsibility that I have now. So I have had to learn that. I've also learned to surround myself with people who are very, very good at that. And so there are a few people on my team who are like the most meticulous, detail-oriented people on the planet. And we work so well together because they know, hey, when it comes to the details, like you have full autonomy and you tell me what you need and how we're going to do this. When it comes to the high level, et cetera, I'll always be there making sure we know which direction we're heading. And so like figuring out that balance. And so as it's, as it's relevant to a founder, I think like learning what you're very strong at and then being able to surround yourself with people who complement those softer spots. Uh, to me, in my experience, it has been incredible for my uh, career progression and sort of my maturity. Um, I wanted to move a little bit into kind of being a platform VC and, and to sort of pig- piggybacking on, on what we're talking about around people. Because yeah. platform VC is like super trendy right now. And uh, yeah. for a while, I mean, the word platform, everybody loves anyway, right? We want platform business models. Yeah. But being a platform VC, what does it mean to you? And w- what are some examples of that that you see out there, especially in the seed stage? What does it mean to help to help entrepreneurs and have some sort of a platform? Where, and where does it come in? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's definitely in vogue right now, I think. It's exciting to see like platform pick up steam because in my mind, what it means is that like the cash component of venture is becoming more and more of a commodity, which is good for founders. And the whole rise of platform and and VCs having to do more than just write checks is good for founders because it's essentially putting VCs on notice and saying like, hey, 
there's a lot of people who can write checks. What else can you do for me? Like, what's the value per dollar I'm going to get out of your investment? I actually saw, this is the first time I ever saw this. I saw a pitch deck the other day and it had a slide, which is what we want in our investor. And it was essentially like, it wasn't like, hey, please give us money. We're so desperate for money. It was like, if you want to qualify to invest in our company, here's what we want you to have. And it was like, I love know, that. I love that. I think that's that's the next thing. Of course, it, you know. It is. And it's it's great for founders. And so I think the rise of Platform VC, um, it has a spectrum of, I think there are funds and investors who are very genuine about it, right? And actually want to build platforms. Um, you know, Antler is a Platform VC. You've got... Fifth Wall, I think, is an amazing example of a very specific platform, which is like all of our LPs are in the real estate business. We only focus on real estate companies. If we give you a dollar, boom, you're going to meet every single person you'd ever want to know in the next two weeks. Um, that's great. Um, you know, there's Alpaca in New York, like Aubrey and her team are working uh, really well on building this platform around like verticalizing specific thesis. Right. So really diving deep, understanding a space, building advisory and partnerships in the space and then bringing teams in and saying, hey, we've done a lot of the sort of weed whacking down the vertical to help you meet the people that you need to meet and understand the space well. Um, and yeah, I think ultimately it's 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 great for founders and it, it's still very like the, the jury is still out on what's the best way. What I think is interesting is like, there's a bunch of different funds trying to figure out different ways to do this. So it's just like exploration mode, which presents a lot of opportunity to figure out like, how do you support founders in a sustainable and scalable way? How do you really add value? How do you help them? Like what do founding teams actually need? And so that's where I think all these questions about like, well, what should we look for in founders? Like what really makes a successful team? Like all these questions are starting to be discussed much more deeply because people are trying to figure out like, well, if we build this platform, like what should we help with? What should we look for? What should we provide? Um, it's very interesting. And I think like VCs are being forced to become much more operators than just check writers. Yeah. I mean, it challenges us too, right? Because it's one thing to say, oh, you know, we have a big Rolodex or something, but that's, it seems to me yeah. that you can't really call yourself a platform VC just because you have a Rolodex or, or even if you have a brand, right? In good, good old days, you know, and we're not going to mention names of, of, of brands that were operating this way, but there certainly are firms that are trading purely on their brand. Um, yeah. But even those firms have had to learn to actually do real stuff yeah. because yeah. it's not enough. No, exactly. And yeah, I think that you'll continue to see innovation here to the, like, I don't think there's one size fits all either, right? There's this misconception that like like startup founders and startups are just this commodity and everybody's out looking for them out of a pool of N. But the reality is there's lots of different types of startups and there's lots of different founders and founders are looking for different things. And this, this I think there's a big misconception that like every founder out there wants to raise venture capital dollars and like go and create a $50 billion IPO. When... I would venture to guess that probably a minority of actual teams out there want like have that as part of their core vision. And what they care much more about is like the mission and what they're trying to accomplish. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, there's, so the platform is one and this is where people, I mean, Antler is, is trying to figure this out 
and working on this, but you have components like community, right? Which is like, how can I build communities of people and how do I organize them? Do I organize them geographically? Do I organize them by sector, by technology? Like, how do I do that? There is the support functions. So these like in-house support functions. So a lot of like A16 is quite famous for like, they have an in-house designer and an in-house marketing expert and uh, these people who can like jump in and serve as interim executives. And then the last component is just like vertical value add, which is like, who do you know that's relevant to my company and who can you introduce me to and how warm are those introductions? Um, and then there's a different part of innovation, which is happening in VC, which is not necessarily platform, but it's like innovation in the financial structuring itself. Right. It was like, okay, the like two and 20, like the safe note 10 years ago was a big innovation and it was great. It was like, Hey, you know, investing in early stage companies and going through the whole valuation process and a shareholders agreement, all of this stuff is way too much work for a company that's generating $0 of revenue. So the safe note was an amazing innovation. Um, what I'm seeing now is a lot of innovation, a lot of thinking around what are new angles and what are new ways for dollars to take exposure to startups that change the incentives or change the returns or change the overall model. And so you see things like hybrid investments where, you know, I'm going to give you some equity, I'm going to give you some debt. You see uh, RBI is starting to be experimented with, which is like, you know, I, I and, you know, the, the whole concept behind RBI is like one of the reasons why VC sort of disproportionately tries to hit home run grand slams, $50 billion IPOs is because that's the only way they get their money back. So RBI is like, hey, this would create an incentive for VCs to actually push their teams to be profitable earlier and to focus on profitability and not necessarily just raw scale. Um, and all of that is good. I think what it will do is start to fill the cracks where VC is not necessarily the best at supporting companies. Which like VC is really good at supporting software companies that can scale infinitely and the total market is everybody on the planet. Um I'll admit VC is not super good at supporting ventures which are local or community focused or you know not hyper scalable. Yeah, I mean you and I have have met some of those companies and they can do great work and but you were sort of I guess training me on on this that it's you know it may, may we may not be the right vehicle for some of those even though they can make tremendous impact and they they can be great companies and they can do 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 great things they're just not um going to be interested in this venture track at least this venture track as it as it kind of in a standard way has been understood right? yeah. yeah um so w one of the things that y y you've been doing with antler right is to try to experiment around even just the business model and the support model and not just in sourcing the right kinds of ideas but uh but but indeed with what we're talking about you know how do you um, how do you find an, a, a more unique way to to work with companies? What is your uh, latest uh, concoction yeah. there? Are you prepared to share some of that with us? Yeah, for sure. I mean, so the latest uh, evolution of like how we're trying to better and better support founders. So traditionally, we bring in founders from all different sectors, different technologies, et cetera. Um, they have, you know, we, we give them a small investment up front. We spend six to 12 weeks working with them and then make a decision based on, you know, the traction of the company 
in that period where we're like really in the trenches with them working on trying to find product market fit. And then we make a larger investment and we've done it sort of agnostically across all sectors and technologies. Um, and so the, the latest innovation is thinking about would it be better for the teams and better for us if we did it like sector by sector? So one of the challenges we have is, you know, if you bring in a food delivery company and then an AI company for copywriting and then a legal tech company and a prop tech company, <clears throat> yeah, they're all building startups, but the relevance to each other doesn't really extend that much further. Um, it does it does coincidentally, but not from a vertical perspective. And so our thinking is, can we do it more vertically focused in sort of increments of four to six months? So instead of bringing in a bunch of different teams and hoping that they can help each other and, and then us also having a context switch between like, how do we help this real estate company? How do we help this CPG company? How do we help this company, et cetera, to say, hey, for the next six months, we're going to focus on companies in three these three verticals. And we're experimenting it because the thesis is, one, is that the companies will find more value out of the community because there's a deeper connection than just we're building a startup. There's a connection in like, hey, we're building a startup trying to improve financial inclusion, right? Or one of the first theses we're working on right now is the creator economy. So it's like, hey, we're all working in the creator economy. There's a lot, our Venn diagrams overlap a lot more and that community makes them a lot more sense from a relevance perspective. And then for us, we can provide more value to our teams. One, because we're not context switching all the time. So we can get deep and smart in that area. But two is like we can, like I said before, kind of weed whack our way forward through some of the intros and advisors and potential customers and competitive awareness that the teams need to have for that vertical for that period of time for those teams. Um, Tyler, so I just I, I love how our conversation is kind of going 360 because we started talking about whether focus was good or bad, and you said, well, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but but it seems like there so there but but there is this like Wikipedia focus that's that that's happening in this approach too, which I guess must fit your personality. And yeah. I think mine well. So at some point, you're focus. It's not that you're not focusing, and you and it's not that you're not diving deep. It's just that you yeah. can't dive deep on everything all the time because first off, that's not really diving deep. It yeah. confuses you and people. And also, yeah. I I like what you're saying about community. It's really hard to build community, even in venture or in any community, if you are yeah. at any moment focused on anything. I and mean, it would be like you and I inviting to a party, and you're like, well. We're going to pretty much talk about everything. I mean, only Seinfeld, uh, only Seinfeld got away with that, right? A show about <laughs> nothing and everything. I mean, yeah. essentially, everything has a topic. Like, if you don't dive into something, yeah, you know, what are you talking about? Yeah, exactly. And I mean, it's about, like I said in the very beginning, I think it's about finding that balance. And so the way I think about it is like, there's two extremes to the focus or agnostic side of venture. One is like, you can go super, super deep in myopic and say, we're a... Uh, a fund we're only focused on pharmaceutical research that's all we touch right so you're incredibly deep in that space and that thesis is sort of implicitly built on like we're experts in this space we know all of the gatekeepers and all the people that you'll need to talk to there's no reason why a company wouldn't come and want to work with us to open those doors um the downside of that thesis is if there are fluctuations in the pharmaceutical market 
space, you're highly exposed. You don't have any hedge against that. You're all in on that space. Um, sure. A better example would be, let's say, cryptocurrency, right? If you built a, so it's funny because this example made a lot of more sense six months ago. Now we're going through like this second crypto <laughs> renaissance. But say in 2017, when uh, Bitcoin hit that first uh, logarithmic scale, you launched a, a cryptocurrency focused fund in 2017. It was super hot. You raised a bunch of money. And then we went into this like crypto winter for three years. Right. So like your fund is highly exposed to the downturn in crypto. Um, and that's tough. It's tough to like get through that period as a fund on the other side, which is completely agnostic. Like you could say the derogatory term is like spray and pray. You just like anything that walks across your door with the heartbeat, you throw money at, um, no concentration risk. So, you know, some would say it's an index strategy, right? It's an ETF strategy of like, we're just betting on the total market going up and we're going to take exposure across so many different things and just rely on technology as a whole is going to win. We're not trying to figure out where it's going to win. Um, the downside is that you, you can't get deep and smart about any one thing, right? You're always going to be very surface shallow level. And for an early stage company, that's tough because like they need someone who understands what they're doing. They need someone who can provide practical advice and really get into the trenches with them. And so the thinking on this evolution is this like six month focuses helps us to find a good balance between those two things. Like Antler's never going to be a, a hyper vertical focused fund. We're also never going to be a, a spray and pray of just like, Hey, we'll invest in anything, et cetera. Um, so finding the right balance where over the life of the fund, we're building diversity, but we're doing it, I mean, like you said, we're doing it like rabbit hole by rabbit hole. <laughs> I love that. Tyler, look, you and I will have many, many more conversations because this, uh, you know, I enjoy talking to you. And I think there are just so many topics that we can uh, explore like uh, rabbit hole by rabbit hole as well on, <laughs> on the podcast. So I wanted to just uh, close it off with uh, having you m maybe... Um, Give some some super quick advice. So if if you know if you are advising founders out there right now or want to be founders, what what's sort of their um, the first question they should ask themselves before they run off and either create a business deck or or come come to Antler? Is it sort of should I do this in the first place or should I you know do you want to argue investigating the market? Like what's kind of just one thing that you would suggest is is fundamental from your side. Yeah. So my personal bias is always at that beginning stage is sort of the question why. And, and going back to what we talked about in the beginning, like figuring out why people want to be entrepreneurs is like really spending the time. It's a very tough question to answer because, you know, the, <laughs> and this is applicable. Why is like the, the existential question of life, right? Because it's where all of your biases and all of the different parts of your brain are trying to trick you into providing different answers. And so spending the time and the effort to really go through the like, why do I want to do this? Why do I want to be an entrepreneur? The problem these days is because of how romanticized it's become and because of the availability bias of thinking like, oh, it's a guaranteed path to be a billionaire. Uh, a lot of people's why, and it may not be immediately apparent to them, but if you kind of dig down, it's like, well, why I want to be entrepreneurs? Because like, I want to be on Forbes and I want to be a billionaire and I want I want to feel like Elon Musk when that first, you know, Falcon one took off and landed, like, that's why I want to do it. Um, and like, 
I personally, and there's people who disagree, but I personally think that's a horrible reason to become an entrepreneur. And I don't think it's sustainable. I think you're setting yourself up for failure if that's your why, because it's going to be 1% that and 99% the opposite of that, which is like doubt and potential financial ruin. I mean, you're betting a lot on being an entrepreneur financially and socially, et cetera, um, versus the best why, and I'll continue to update this model in my head as I continue to meet founders or whatever, but the best why and the best founders I've ever worked with, it's always some version of, I, I, I won't, I like, I can't sleep at night if this, if someone's not working on solving this problem. It's, it's an obsession with the problem. And, and I, I, I'm, I'm guilty of using Elon Musk as an example way too frequently, but I think he's a great representation of like, he is almost maniacally obsessed with this idea of like humans colonizing Mars. And it doesn't, the thing is, it's like, it doesn't need to make sense to other people. As long as you truly are obsessed with like, I need this to happen. Like I can't sleep at night. And if I were to work a job at Oracle, I would like pull my hair out every day thinking like, I'm not working on solving this problem. Thanks. That's um, that's fascinating. We'll we'll pick up on that thread uh, later. But I think uh, that obsession is uh, is important. Thanks so much for coming on the show today, Tyler. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Tron. You have just listened to episode ninety five of the Futurized podcast with host Tronar Nivenheim, futurist and author. The topic was CDVC trends, founder obsession. In this conversation, we talked about how Tyler got into venture, and we discussed betting on founders, teams, and people, and covered the role of pivots, failures, and learning fast and slow. And we also discussed C-stage metrics, reducing risk, and what does the market look like, and seed investing outlooks in the next decade. My takeaway is that being a platform VC is a good way to go, because founders need all the help they can get, and money is not sufficient to provide uh, from the early investors. So, founders should become choosers. It's the only way to turn the tide for a more fair early seed stage experience for a diverse set of founders. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at futurize.org or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you like this topic, you may enjoy other episodes of Futurize, such as episode 70 on the future of clean tech, episode 61 on the emergent Arabian startup scene, or episode 47 on how to invest in sci-fi tech. Futurize, preparing you to deal with disruption.